Hello, everybody, and welcome to Before the Downbeat, a musical podcast. We're back. Uh, I am your host, Ginger, a man who shaved off his quarantine beard because he was tired of it and decided to go for the goatee. Uh, Mackenzie, thank you, thank you. As you heard, we do have our, my friend, my, my director extraordinaire, the Canadian B. Arthur, the Lady of Muskoka, the... Uh, I, 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 I almost said the Guinevere to my King Arthur, and I was like, oh, no, that doesn't end well for them, so maybe not that. <laughs> but Autumn Smith! Hello, 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 everybody. Yes, hello, hello, hello. So, Autumn, what are we doing this episode? We are doing Camelot. Camelot! Camelot. I know it gives a person pause, <laughs> but in Camelot... Yes, that's right. We are breaking out into the learner and low canon. I know this is wow. our first time with these these lads. It is. It is our first time with the with this dynamic duo, and we are going back into the Arthurian times. Yeah. We, so far this season, we've done Dickensian times, and now we're doing Arthurian times, two very different time periods. And this was the musical I chose for us to do. Yes, you did. It wasn't in one of your choices, but no. I'll tell you why I chose it. Okay. So first of all, uh, I love the Middle Ages, like medieval times, my cup of tea. I well, mean, I work, at, work there. You should know. I do. I do. I do. I mean, I would love to do a Camelot in medieval times. I do a production of Camelot in the sand with the horses because they actually can do the joust song properly. It'd Dear be great. Lord. That'd be fun. But yes, I love the Middle Ages. I grew up on the stories of King Arthur and his Knights of the Round Table. That, uh, I, like, that was one of the books my dad read to me. I, 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 we had a great illustrated classics copy of, of King Arthur and his Knights of the Round Table, which was a great book with pictures and everything. And then I just love the music of this musical. Like This is such a beautiful, lush score it has sweeping love ballads terrific choral numbers and and just amazing soliloquy songs like the music of the show like it, it broke the partnership of learner and love but yeah. what they wrote was gorgeous like the music like like, like it's just gorgeous like I, 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 it's just it's just so good and then I found out the musical had was tied to JFK and the Kennedy family. Well, then you are hooked. And I was hooked because, as we have discussed in previous episodes, I am a big Kennedy history buff. So the fact I found out that he used to listen on, on a nightly basis to the finale of Camelot because he was school friends with Mr. Lerner, 
Yes, he certainly uh, was in two schools. Exactly. At two schools, exactly. Yep. So, 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 so the fact he listened to to their to this album every night just gives me that extra special thing of like, oh yeah, Kennedy and I we listen to the same bit of music here. He would sit at night and listen to Camelot, and it's gorgeous. But either way, the Kennedys they're associated with this musical. I mean, the fact they even included the song Camelot in the film Jackie, starring Natalie Portman. It was the Camelot era re- revisited. Yes. It, they called it Camelot. That the Kennedy yes, Jackie era, Kennedy right? called it Camelot. Yeah, well, she in in Life magazine gave the quote that that that, that she built this image of Camelot with her with her husband's presidency, and very smartly, she was very smart at marketing that to people, and that helped solidify their image in history. Yeah. But yeah, and then lastly, I just like how the musical makes you want to strive for that utopian ideal of Camelot. Like you leave the theater going, yeah, let's go. Like, let's go get our Camelot. Let's go, like, uh, let's go strive for that utopia. And at the, I have to say, at the end of this musical, every time when we get to the sequence where Arthur is back at the camp and he meets Tom of Warwick, and he's downhearted, and then Tom of War reminds him of Camelot and what it what it was meant for, not for his pride, not for his vanity, but for idealism and for good, and and the fact that you get that reprise of Camelot as he's knighting him and saying, "Remember, don't let this be forgot. That once there was a shining spot, that was known as Camelot." I'm tearing up, yes, <laughs> like the ending. Everybody. Like the ending just yeah. makes me cry. And then you have the ending where, 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 where it's like in some of those drops, they sparkle. Run, boy, run. That ending, like, oh my goodness. It's just, it's so beautiful. I'm, I really am tearing up here. Mackenzie, everyone is an idealist. As you can tell, my heart is as cold as the stone <laughs> that Arthur drew his sword from. Uh, for me it's it's the opposite i I, and it is tragic it is tragic because he set this ideal with goodness and he gets screwed over he does you're it for me it leaves me with a hole of like does the good guy ever win is there a possibility for the good guy to ever just truly win and no, because because, because to survive. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, yeah, no, because the whole thing with Camelot is that it's ruined by human fallibility. That's the downfall. And for people who don't know what Camelot is, I'll give yes. you a friend so you can chart give us the plot breakdown. It's prepare. Might take a yes. couple of hours. It's epic. Exactly. Well, I mean, it's it's a big it's a big book they adapted it from. So it's adapted from the book The Once and Future King by T.H. White. So Camelot tells the story of King Arthur. It starts with him awaiting to go to battle against Lancelot. And as he waits, he thinks back on how did he end up in this situation where his knights are dead and he is now at war with one of his friends. So we are then brought back in time to a younger Arthur who is with Merlin and he is awaiting the arrival of his future queen, Guinevere. Arthur climbs a tree to try and catch a glimpse of her procession. And just as he does that, Guinevere shows up in the glade. 
because she has escaped her procession because she is not looking forward to getting married. It's been arranged, so she's so she plans to run away, and Arthur overhears this in the tree, and he presents himself to her, and he convinces her to stay at, at the kingdom of Camelot. And so Arthur and Guinevere set off to get married, and in the meantime, Merlin is taken away from Arthur by the water nymph Nimue, and he is locked away from Arthur. And this is not good for Arthur because Merlin has the ability to see into the future, so he tries to warn Arthur of Lancelot and Mordred, but he is unable to as Nimue removes him from the story and Arthur's court. So five years later, we have a great sequence where we have Arthur and Guinevere sitting in his study, and, and he's debating what to do for the kingdom, because he wishes to create a new kind of knight, one that does not pillage and fight, but tries to uphold honor and justice. Yeah. And he's eventually inspired with Guinevere's help to establish the round table with the motto, Might for Right. And Guinevere's father just so happens to have a round table that he never uses in his court. So they're going to steal that table. And sure enough, we get the round table. We then do another time jump of another five years. And now the Knights of the Round Table has become this great establishment that everybody wants to be a part of. And the fame of the table has reached France. And that has resulted in Lancelot du Lac of Joyous Guard arriving at Camelot to claim his seat at the table as he feels he is divine right to be part of this group as he is he's very cocky he's very cocky he's so cocky in fact that when arthur crosses crosses by on his way to the uh mayfair that uh lancelot fights him and basically knocks arthur out which then impresses arthur actually he's very impressive he was bested by someone and so he's like, oh, great. So you're welcoming Camelot. So off they go to the Mayfair where Guinevere is hosting her May Day celebrations, which leads to the, one of the great production numbers, The Lusty dirty. Month of May. Oh, it's such a great song. Very dirty. It's a very dirty song. Guinevere is a very saucy lady. Let me tell you. So it's May Day and Arthur and Lancelot show up. And Guinevere is automatically put off by Lancelot's bold and kind of pompous attitude. So she's not overly impressed with them right off the top. And as time goes on, Lancelot makes enemies with all the other knights in court. And Guinevere, playing off this, because she likes playing the knights against each other, sets Lancelot up to be in a, in a joust against the three best knights of, 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 of Camelot. Right. Yeah. And he defeats them all. He does. He defeats them all and severely wounds uh, Sir Lionel. And it's, but yet he saves Sir Lionel. He, he almost has a miracle moment um, uh, where, where basically he has these like howling cries of, of, of pain and trying to save him. And somehow that magically saves Lionel. So we don't know if he actually does have some miracle powers. Maybe he does. I don't know. It's never made clear in, in the book or the script uh, what happened. There, but either way, Sir Lionel is resurrected. And this results in Guinevere starting to fall for Lancelot and everybody in the kingdom kind of turning toward Lancelot. And Arthur is so impressed, he denounces that that evening they will knight Lancelot and make him, and make him an official member of the round table. Yes. And so and that results in one of the great monologues of the, of the show 
when Arthur is about to knight Lancelot and he has a soliloquy to his sword, Excalibur, where he realizes that Guinevere and Lancelot are falling for each other. He has this moment of, what do I do? And he ultimately says, they will rise to the challenges, they will face it together and fight these urges. Which is like, oh no, Arthur, don't do it, buddy. Years pass and Guinevere and Lancelot are still tormented by their unfulfilled love for each other. And then Arthur's illegitimate son, Mordred, shows up in court. And he is hell-bent on destroying Camelot, dishonoring King Arthur, and gaining the throne for himself. Ah, Richard III. Very Richard III. Enter Richard III. Basically, basically. Yes. Yeah. Well, well, Mordred, he's an interesting fellow. Arthur, because Mordred is his illegitimate son, Arthur puts him in charge of the knight's training program. Not a good idea, because he doesn't know that Mordred wants to destroy Camelot. But he puts him in a very powerful position of training the knights. And then, as Mordred works his way around the court, Guinevere, Lancelot, and Arthur's friend and new advisor, King Pellinor, all grow suspicious of Mordred and try and warn Arthur of, like, hey, watch out for this guy. Not good. And Arthur ignores them because he goes, he's my son. I have to believe that if my blood runs in his veins, I can turn him to the good. And unfortunately, that doesn't work. So, Such an optimist, our Arthur. Right? Right. So while Arthur is proclaiming this, Mordred is advancing his plot against Arthur by inciting riots with the knights as he reminds them of the good old days of when they were raping and pillaging, basically, around, around the kingdom. All that raping and pillaging. Good times. Right? Well, well, he incites them. He, he, he gets them fired up against Arthur. He's conniving. He's... Exactly. Exactly. He's, yeah. and, and we will get into that moment because it is because there's a song in that moment that I, we will talk about. Part one of his plan is get the knights against Arthur and get them all hot and heavy for, 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 for a little bit of action. And then he goes into the magical forest of Camelot and he convinces the sorceress Morgan Le Fay to trap Arthur in her invisible castle next time he's out on a hunt for the night. And he bribes her with sweets because she has a sweet tooth. Yeah. Sweet. Very funny. Exactly. Now, mind you, we should note that in subsequent productions, Lerner has removed Morgan Le Fay from the second act as he felt that moment was too comical and he instead opted for a more darker scene between Mordred and Arthur, where, where, where they have this debate with each other. Right. Uh, so unfortunately, Morgan Le Fay, she got the axe, which makes sense. She's a one-scene one character. You don't really need her. You could, it's better to keep the focus on Arthur and Mordred. Trim her down, boys. Trim her down. Exactly. Exactly. So Arthur goes out for a hunt in the forest, and Morgan Le Fay traps him. In the rewrite, it's, it's um, Arthur gets transported because as he's walking through the woods, he finds the glen where him and Merlin used to train together. So he gets kind of sent down memory lane and kind of chooses to stay in the forest for a night as he remembers that. And he sends Mordred back to Camelot to inform the court that he will not be back in the evening. And he hopes that Guinevere and Lancelot will be able to resist each other for the night. But, but they don't. That evening, Guinevere waits in her room. Lancelot arrives and they consummate, they seal it with a kiss. And we'll get into why that was the direction they went with for that moment. 
of the play, but they do act on their unfaithfulness. And just as they kiss, Mordred has forced his way into the room with the knights, and they catch Lancelot and Guinevere, and Guinevere is charged with adultery, and Lancelot is charged with treason. Yeah. And there's a big battle that ensues, and Lancelot escapes, and Guinevere is arrested and brought to trial, where she is sentenced to be burned at the stake. And Arthur, because Arthur's hands are tied, because Mordred has tied Arthur's hands, basically saying, you either admit you're fallible and that your kingdom isn't this idealized utopia and that it's just as broken as every other society we live in. Or she burns at the stake by your laws. And he, and Arthur has to let her burn at the stake to, to do it. But when he makes it so, it's set in the early morning where Lancelot can mount a very well-coordinated uh, rescue yeah. attempt on, on, on Guinevere, which he does. He does rescue Guinevere. There's another battle where more knights are killed, which causes them to seek revenge against Lancelot as he escapes past, uh, across the English Channel back to France. And then we're brought back to where we started the play with Arthur waiting to go to battle. And as he's waiting, Lancelot and Guinevere show up in the camp and turns out their relationship has floundered. Based on lust alone. I know, I know. So Guinevere has, has gone off to a convent and Lancelot doesn't want to fight. They both say they would love to come back to England and face justice and Arthur can't bear the idea of Lancelot being beheaded and Guinevere burning at the stake. So he says, no, we can't do that. We will have to duel it out instead because I can't bear the other way. And so they leave him. That's how that relationship dissolves. And he's really downhearted. And that's when he comes across a young stowaway boy named Tom of Warwick. And he talks to Tom and says, why are you here? And And he says, I want to be a knight. I want to be a knight of the round table. And Tom of Warwick reminds Arthur of... Of, of idealism and hope and, and what Camelot really meant. And because of that, God. he, right? It is sad. It is sad. It's so, I... it's so sad. And Arthur realizing that is the victory he was needing. He knights Sir Tom of Warwick and tells him, you will not fight in the battle. Instead, you will hide in a tent and you will, and you will go back to England and you will tell the tales of Camelot. And the play ends with the great line, as we talked about, which is, run, boy, run. A few drops, they sparkle, Perry. They sparkle. Mm-hmm. And that's how it ends. All right, Autumn, let's get into some production and creative team stuff. So let's start off with the creative team. And really, it's these two big names, Lerner and Lowe. So, who Lerner are they? Lerner and Lowe. Let's start with a little bit of Lerner, shall we? Alan J. Lerner. Yes. Born 1918, died 1986. American lyricist and librettist. Mm -hmm. He worked primarily with Lowe. That was his number one collaborator, and we'll get into how they met in a minute. Wrote some together some of the most enduring work in the musical theater classical canon. Amazing. Amazing. He was born in New York and was son of Edith and Joseph. And brother Samuel was founder and owner of the Lerner Stores. Fun fact. Ah, there you go. A chain of dress shops. Very cool. Hmm. Lerner was educated at, I think it's the Beatles School in England. 
Okay. And the Choate School and Harvard, where he went to school both places, won John Fitzgerald Kennedy, and they became very, very good friends. There you go. Um, it was at Harvard that Lerner became interested in musical theater through mm-hmm. the Hasty Pudding musicals. A lot of people, oh. have, yeah. That seems to be a trajectory for a lot of our composers. During 1936, summers of 1936 and 37, he went Mm -hmm. and studied musical composition at Juilliard. And while he was attending Harvard, he lost sight in his left eye, a boxing incident. Oh, dear. Yeah. So he wasn't able to fight in the Second World War. Instead, he stayed home. He wrote radio scripts, including Your Hit Parade. And he would often be in attendance at the Lambs Club, where, in 1942, he met his collaborator, Frederick Lowe. Their first musical collaboration was an adaptation of Mm -hmm. Barry Connors' farce, The Patsy, called... Life of the Party, and it debuted Great. at a Detroit summer stock company. It enjoyed a nine-week run, and the duo felt empowered by this and joined forces with Arthur, Arthur Pearson for What's Up, which was their first run on Broadway, and it ran for 63 performances, and it was followed two years later by The Day Before Spring. Um, their first big hit was... Brigadine, the wonderful gold rush story of Paint Your Wagon. Yeah, which then became a movie with Clint Eastwood, which wasn't good. (laughs) We'll talk about Paint Your Wagon at some point. Lerner then went on to work with Kurt Weill on the stage musical Love Life and Mm -hmm. with Burton Lane, another one of his collaborators on the musical Royal Wedding. In the same year, Lerner wrote the Oscar-winning original screenplay for An American in Paris. I did not know that about him, which is amazing. Oh, that is interesting. Which was directed by Vincent Minnelli and produced by Arthur Freed, who would come together with Lerner and Lowe later on mm-hmm. to do Gigi, my mother's favorite musical. And Vincent Minnelli, who is he the father of, Autumn? Eliza with a Z. In 1956, this is the big one, mm-hmm. Lerner and Lowe unveiled My Fair Lady. You know, it turns Pygmalion on its butt a little bit because it's mm-hmm. really not a, it's not a happy myth. So No, it isn't. It isn't. And, it's, and people consider My Fair Lady the greatest musical comedy ever written. Yeah. It's so complex and yet so simple. Yes. And we will get into My Fair Lady later on because there's a lot to discuss in that show. Well, it's particularly the the ending of of the musical is now proving to be problematic to people. Well, it's it's interesting. There are a lot of similarities that I found listening to Arthur, Arthur's Mm -hmm. music in comparison to Higgins. Like, Yes. Well, we will get into why that is in the production notes, because I do have why. Oh, exciting. Then after that, they started to focus on Camelot. And Mm -hmm. that happened in 1960, but it really started to separate them. Lerner wanted to like direct it as well as write it. Yeah, yeah, there's a reason why that he he came to that idea. 
Well, is, yeah. There's a particular reason that caused that to happen. This this whole production was cursed. <laughs> well, Moss Hart had the heart attack and yeah. died yeah. shortly. You know, like, just yeah. bad. Lerner was hospitalized with bleeding ulcers. Lowe continued to have heart yes. problems. Yes. Anyway, Camelot was a hit nonetheless. <laughs> and it w- uh, Yeah, it was a hit. Cam- uh, so what does it say here? Immediately following the assassination of John F. Kennedy, his mm-hmm. widow told reporter Theodore H. White. Yes. Interesting. That JFK's administration reminded her of that one brief shining moment. Camelot, mm-hmm. right? It was. <laughs> so interesting comes back to that. Um, as of the early 21st century, Camelot was still invoked to describe idealism, romance, and tragedy of the Kennedy years. It's true. Absolutely. It is. The parallel is so striking. After that, Lola, uh, Frederick went off to Palm Springs and Lerner went through a series of musicals, some successful, some not, with Andre Previn, John Barry, Bernstein, yes. Burton Lane, uh, Charles yeah. Strauss. Um, and then Lerner declined a few things. Mm-hmm. Um, hold on one second. Lerner's professional decline on the lack of a strong director with whom he could collaborate mm-hmm. led to a lot of his downfall. Like he he needed he needed someone to help him out. Exactly. But where where I will leave this, which I find very interesting, mm-hmm. is that. At the time of Lerner's death, he had been working with Gerard Kennedy and Christy Kane on a musical version of My Man Godfrey. He also okay. received an extremely urgent call from one Baron Andrew Lloyd Webber asking him to write the lyrics to Phantom of the Opera. Right. I totally forgot that that was an offer that was put out to him. But he passed he away. He couldn't because he was losing his memory. He had an undiagnosed brain tumor. Mm. And Charles Hart uh, replaced him. <clears throat> he also turned down an invitation to write the English language lyrics to Les Miserables. I actually could see Lerner taking on that task. Can you believe that? He is very lyric. I, I definitely can see, especially following these Arthurian lyrics. I can definitely see that there are some parallels between him and like. Well, he he's Herbert Kretzmer and Lame is yeah. 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 So that's that's a little bit about our our boy Alan J. Lerner, and then his frequent collaborator was Frederick Lowe. I think it's a Lowe. Yeah. It's be Love. I I've always thought it was Lerner and Lowe is what people have always said to me. So I've 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 always gone with Lowe. It is a, a W in, you know, Germany. So mm. I'm wondering if it is Luf. Anyway. Yeah, we, we've all just been saying it wrong the whole time. And he's like, gosh darn it, people. I'm, I'm going to find out. Because now I'm curious right. for my fair lady. Because here, when it's spelled out phonetically, it has a V in it. Right. So we've been messing it up the whole time. Or he angularized it. He Which could have. Germanizing it anyway, whatever. Exactly. Because English is derived from 
German. Anyway. Germanic, yeah, either way. He was an Austrian-American composer. These guys did a lot of stuff together. He was born in Berlin to Viennese parents. His father was a noted Jewish operetta star who performed throughout Europe and North and South America. He starred as Count Danilo in the 1906 Berlin production of The Merry Widow. Very interesting. Okay. Um, Friedrich Lohf, uh, <laughs> I'm just going to combine them, Goodness. in Berlin and attended a Prussian cadet school. And from the age of mm-hmm. five until he was 13, he was there. At an early age, Lowe began to play the piano and to help his father rehearse. Cute. That's so cute. Yeah. And then became a composer at the age of seven. He eventually attended a conservatory in Berlin. At the age of 13, he was the youngest piano soloist ever to appear at the Berlin Philharmonic. Come on. Come on. That's pretty amazing. That is amazing. Um, In 1924, he received an offer to appear in New York City, and he traveled there, which is, he met a a, a woman, uh, they got Mm -hmm. married, but then they divorced, and he met Lerner at the Lambs Club, and pretty much the rest is history. Yes, um, which we just talked about. Yes. Now, uh, when, when I was talking about Lerner and the decline of his career due to a lack mm-hmm. of director, you know, sometimes right. had Prince, etc., right? Yes. He had Moss Hart. And right. Moss Hart was an American playwright and theater director. Yes. Uh, he wrote um, pro- uh, prolifically with Ferber mm-hmm. and Kaufman. Okay. And their play, uh, their plays include You Can't Take It With You and The Man Who Came to Dinner. Famous, famous. I was about to say, those are very famous plays that that most people should know. American plays. You Can't Take It With You is brilliant. It's so funny. Yeah. I I love it. Um, It won the Pulitzer, coincidentally, for drama. There you go. And it is his most revived play. Throughout the 1930s, Hart worked with and without Coffin on several musicals, mm-hmm. Thousand Cheers, Face the Music. He did shows with songs by Cole Porter uh, and Lawrence Hart. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, after a while, Kaufman and Hart called it quits. They were like, um, yeah. we're done. Right. But then he, he went on to work with Lerner and Lowe and did My mm-hmm. Fair Lady and... Camelot. Which was his last. Which was his last. I think it was almost everyone's last. Yeah. It's kind of like well, the it's... ideal is no. <laughs> well, that's exactly I was, I was about to say. The whole concept of them working on this musical Camelot and the fact that at the end, this utopian dream team that they had built from My Fair Lady cracked under. Before that, Brigadoon, Gigi, Painter Wagon, all successful in their own right. Correct, but exactly, and you and you have this trio building this partnership, and then ultimately, just like at the end of Camelot, where it's all broken. Same thing happened here. Sad. Yeah, it's really sad. Uh, ready for some production history? So, following the success of My Fair Lady, Lerner and Lowe set out to write their next big hit. Ta-da. Right, and they chose the book The Once and Future King by T. H. White. And this is an epic novel, as we talked about. And due to the vast scope, Lerner and Lowe decided they could only do certain parts. They couldn't do the entire book in one sitting. 
So they chose, the particular stories they chose were Arthur's marriage to Guinevere, her romance with Sir Lancelot, the establishment of the utopic kingdom of Camelot, and his subsequent fall. Mm-hmm. However, a lot of their friends who knew the book were like, don't do those. The best part of that book that stands out that you should do is, is the sword and the stone part of the story. And they were, and they were like, no, we're going to do ours. <laughs> sword and the stone part? Why that part? They said it, people said it fit better musically. Like it lent itself better to me being a musicalized story. Than what well, they made they, a Disney version out of it. That's nice. Sword in the Stone. It, it, is, it is a very good Disney film, Sword in the Stone. You, you should show that one to read. He would like it. Yeah. So Lerner and it off to write this musical after their friends are like, don't write that part of the book, write the other part. But they were like, no, we're sticking with what we're going to do. Yeah, love stories. They, and they knew, they knew that love stories worked. Unconventional correct, just, love stories. Correct. Because they, they just done My Fair Lady. Home. Correct. Smart. However, early in the writing process, they hit their first hitch which was Lerner's wife left him, causing him to seek medical attention and delaying the production. Once they're back on schedule, they really wanted to build off the hype of My Fair Lady, which included doing a lot of the same musical stylings that was done in My Fair Lady, which is why a lot of the Arthur songs are very similar to Henry Higgins in, in, in My Fair Lady because they had considered Rex Harrison for Arthur at one point. Yeah, I can see that. So they were writing music that would kind of fit his voice mm-hmm. and also just fit that sound they captured in My Fair Lady. Yeah. Ultimately, Rex Harrison didn't play King Arthur, but they did get Eliza Doolittle herself, Ms. Julie Andrews, to take on the role of Guinevere. And they got other, uh, I know, well, yeah, yeah, like even she has some issues looking back on playing Guinevere. We'll get into that. But she's not like if I were. Casting Guinevere, she would not be the first person I'd think of. Well, they did. Uh, once again, she was a star. She was their star mm-hmm. for My Fair Lady. It's that whole idea of build off the, the foundation we just have, the great big hit. People are going to want to see us mm-hmm. right again, and we're going to have the same kind of team behind us. Which yeah. included not only Julie Andrews, but also Robert Coote, who played Pelinor and was also part of the original cast of My Fair Lady. You had Moss Hart returning to direct. Mm-hmm. Kenya uh, Holm as the choreographer, Franz Allers as the conductor, and Oliver Smith as the designer. This the, the senior designer. You know, if it works, why why exactly? Why break something that's perfect? Yes. When it came to casting the role of Arthur, since they were going to go with Rex Harrison, Hart then came up the concept of casting Welsh actor Richard Burton to mm. do the part instead, because yeah. he had learned from Lerner that Burton could sing. Great. So they're like, okay, he could do it. So Burton when he was offered the part, consulted his dear friend, Laurence Olivier, about whether or not he should take the role. And he told him that there was a stipend of $4,000 a week. And Laurence Olivier went, yeah, take it. You're good. Take it. $4,000 a week? Yes, back then. That's not inflated. $4,000 a week? Mm -hmm. And mind you, he earned his keep. He earned his keep when we get into more of the production history. Holy crap. Uh, but yes, so That's Burton signs on. Bucks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Burton signs on, Julie Andrews signs on. They then have to figure out who the heck they're going to get to play Lancelot. They're having problems. And it was in 1959 that Robert Goulet, Canadian 
unknown actor Robert Goulet was introduced to librettist Lerner and composer Lowe. And they signed him on once they heard him sing. They were like, you're it. That's it. You, you, you sold us. Handsome. Good shot. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And so they cast their three leads. And off they go. To start rehearsal, when they started rehearsal, they only had the first act written. They hadn't finished writing the show. So, oh so, so they were trying to cast things like Mordred, who shows up in Act 2, and they don't, they don't have anything written for him yet. So talk about a headache for the actors. Where they're like, where is the story going? Because yeah. Act 1 and Act 2 are very different from each other. Mm-hmm. They they're were- not... There are two very different, it's almost like Into the Woods, where there are two different stories in each act that kind yeah. of have carryover characters between the acts. But other than that, they're very different thematically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. True. Yeah, yes. Um, so rehearsals were routinely becoming stressful due to the building of great expectations and huge advanced ticket sales for the show. So, like, the pressure was mounting on everybody. And when they got to Toronto to start doing Edit Town Trias, the show clocked in at four hours and 42 minutes. Talk like about watching a long full show. Hamlet. Yes, exactly. Who wants to do that? Preview started on October 1st, 1960 in Toronto. And then basically it was decided that, hey, we need to do some serious editing. But even with that long runtime, they still got generally positive reviews, even though like the reviews were subtly hinting that there needed to be some edits done. But, they, but, but, but critics, though, were still stuck with the project, saying they saw the potential in the story. They saw what it could be. They just said, yeah. you gotta, you gotta work. So soon after preview started in Toronto, Lerner was hospitalized for three weeks with, with a bleeding ulcer. Soon after he was discharged, director Moss Hart suffered his second heart attack and that basically left Lerner as temporary director and that created problems for Lerner and Lowe which is where we which is where we alluded to with Lerner wanting to be the director and actually wanting to make changes and Lowe saying no we shouldn't make any changes until Hart gets back we should just try and do make 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 as little creative decisions as possible until our third party is here. So there was consideration to hire another director. However, Moss Hart pleaded with them not to replace him, and they didn't. So one of their constant struggles the creative team was having as they were reworking this four-hour script was how to deal with the adultery plot that takes place in the story between Guinevere and Lancelot, because this wasn't something that was done really often yet. Like, you have to think we're heading into the 60s. Yeah. The whole concept of this adulterous affair, which in the book is much more explicit. Like Guinevere does sleep with Lancelot in the book. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not just a kiss like it is on stage. No, I can see why that was a bit taboo. It was. It was very taboo. And and the biggest problem with it was that it, it made it made Lancelot and Guinevere unredeemable characters to the audience. And it threw yeah. off the weighted balance between these three characters. It, because, because it's a balancing act between the three, Arthur, Lancelot, Guinevere. And the, and the minute you have work. them going all, exactly. It won't work if they're vilified. Correct. You, 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 cannot, need to, you cannot vilify those characters. As it is, correct. you're teetering on the precipice of vilifying her, which is a correct. problematic. 
it was decided that instead of going all the way, that they would kiss and almost come to consummating the <laughs> adultery relationship. But Mordred barges in before. He does. Uh, Julie Handers, though, so in interviews, she notes that audiences saw her as quite virginal on stage. And because of that, they were very uncomfortable with watching her commit adultery, which is another reason why that plot was a challenge for her. Yes. Well, she is, she is the epitome of the trophy wife. Do you know what yes. I mean? Yes. Like Maria Von Trapp, Mary yeah. Poppins, all of her like big roles are very good. They're very good. Yeah. But, but even me, Eliza is still good at the end where she comes back to Henny Higgins and gives him his slippers. I, 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 for I, me, I, she's not even an Eliza. Like that is not her best role. Her best roles are her pure roles because yes. she is. She's a beautiful, pure person. Yes. She's a good, pure, honest person. But and the minute you have for doing... Yeah. We won't hold her purity against her. Yeah. Very sweet. And I love, I, like, I love her in Sound of Music and Mary Poppins. Those are her, that is her hit. Mm-hmm. Yes. But I, I, I can't buy her as lusty. Yes. Right? Yes. And, that, and that's part of the issue. Yes. Um, so... I would be right. turned off by that, too. I'd be like... Exactly. No. What am I so, here? Right? That, that's exactly it. And audiences were feeling the same way. So that's why they went with that kiss and don't go all the way routine. But Andrews actually was annoyed by this. She was like, no, Guinevere and Lancelot should go all the way. It's better for the story that, 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 that you go all the way with these two. And she also wanted to mature up her image as an actress. Maybe she was way. just wanting to hit on Robert Goulet. Could be. You never know. You never know. Either way. So they ultimately were like, yeah, no, we're not good. We're not doing that, Julie. We're just sticking with the kiss and that's it. So the other hurdle was that when things were going wrong, as we know in theater, and when shows are not working, there's big money on the table, they start firing people thinking Mm -hmm. that will solve the problem. And Robert Goulet came up on the chopping block as he was an unknown actor. And it was. King Arthur himself, Richard Burton, who saved him, he, he spoke up for him and said, no, he's not the problem. Don't fire him. And they didn't. They, they kept him on. Goulet was not fired thanks to Richard Burton. Richard Burton saved that man's career. My goodness. And, and, it, and it was in Boston when they were still making edits that um, Burton really stepped up and became like the leader of the company. By accepting cut the cuts and changes uh, with grace, and he radiated faith and gentility and calmed the fears of the cast. And Lerner even wrote, God knows what would have happened if it had not been for Richard Burton. So that's why he got paid $4,000 a week, was because he saved that production. He was a true Arthur. He was. He very, he very much was. Uh, Guinevere saw... $4,000 a week, I would... Be graceful too, hopefully. I would hope so. <laughs> I would also just hope that for what he has to do for that show, like it's like think about it, four hours, that's a lot of Arthur on stage. And and you're if you're cutting and changing things repeatedly on that actor, you better be paying him something good to keep up with all that because after all that's just gonna annoy him. That's a fact, lot of money though at that time. 
Absolutely, but he earned his keep. Here's song before I gaze at you again. given to Julie Andrews at the last minute before the first New York preview, which provoked her very famous quote, which was, of course, darling, but do try to get it to me the night before. So they give her the song, the preview start, Moss Hart is still not fully recovered yet, so they're still having problems. Camelot opened on Broadway at the Majestic Theater, which is now the home of Phantom of the Opera. Yes. On December 3rd, 1960, with Richard Burton as King Arthur, Julie Andrews as, as Guinevere, Robert Goulet as Lancelot, David Hurst as Merlin, Robert Coote as Pelinor, Roddy McDowell as Mordred, and Mel Dowd as Morgan Le Fay. Cool. Yeah. The New York critics who were reviewing the original production were mixed on the show. However, the show's luck improved when they went on Ed Sullivan because Ed Sullivan came to Lerner and Lowe because he asked him to create a segment for his television variety show celebrating the fifth anniversary of My Fair Lady. Right. They decided that due to the very few previews they'd had and they wanted to kind of boost the sales of Camelot, that they, instead of doing all their old work and kind of featuring Brigadoon and, and My Fair Lady, instead they were like, well, let's just take that time and do like scenes from Camelot. Yeah. And that's what they did. That's what they did. And it proved to be a huge boost to their sales. They earned an advance of three and a half million dollars in advance ticket sales from that half hour segment on Ed Sullivan. Well, it's escapism, right? Like you think of yes. the sale of Arthur, it's pure escapism. Yes. And people love King Arthur. Like there's a reason why he's one of the great literary characters we have yeah. in it's Western like, culture. Like Odysseus. Yes. Right? Like there's huge epic journey that happens. Mm-hmm. You know? Yes, exactly. And it's, it's fantastical. Yes, it's so fantastical. It's beautiful. I love it. So on the program, they perform the numbers Camelot, as well as If Ever I Would Leave You. And because of this, Robert Goulet very famously then found his signature song, and that was it for him. He was a big household name after yeah. that. And fun fact, uh, during the airing of this Ed Sullivan segment, Walt Disney and the Sherman Brothers saw it, and that is how they came to go after Julie Andrews for the role of Mary Poppins, because they watched her perform and went, oh, that's our Mary Poppins. They hadn't found her yet, right? So they were looking for her, and they went, and they went, oh, her. She could do it. She has a presence to be Mary Poppins. She is Mary Poppins. She is Mary Poppins. She'll always be Mary Poppins to people. That's such an iconic role. Oscar-winning role for her, by the way. Yeah. After the show opened on Broadway and after things were going, were improving, Hart was released from the hospital and he learned went back to continue cutting the play even further. They then cut two more songs, which was Then You May Take Me to the Fair. Achieve them, and if you do, then you will be the 
features Guinevere once again pitting the knights against each other as they all vie for her affections in court, as well as the song Fie on Goodness. Fie on goodness, fie, fie on goodness, fie. Eight years of kindness to your neighbor, making sure that the meek are treated well. Eight years of philanthropic labor, Derry down down, cat, but it's hell. Depressing all the way, Derry down. And getting glamour every day, Derry down. Up oh, to burn a little town, I slay a dozen men. Anything to laugh again. The song Mordred and the Knights sing when he's trying to kind of get them going, rowdy them up. Right. However, they were recorded for the album and they and they have been put back into subsequent revivals. So, there you go. There the you original, go. The original Broadway production was nominated for five Tony Awards, including Best Performance for Lead Actor for Richard Burton, Best Actress for Julie Andrews, Best Conductor and Musical Director, Best Scenic Design, and Best Costume Design. It won four out of the five, with only Julie Andrews not winning a Tony Award for her performance as Guinevere. Well, I mean, ta-da, shocker. Yeah. yeah. But Burton did win for Arthur, which he rightfully deserves. He is King Arthur for many people. The production closed on January 5th, 1963, after 873 performances and two previews. Camelot, as we talked about, was Hart's last show. He died of a heart attack in Palm Springs on December 20th, 1961. So that was it for him. And basically, as we talked about, it ended the partnership of Lerner and Lowe except for when they came back a few times to collaborate, such as on the musical film, uh, musical Gigi in 1973 and on, and on the movie musical, The Little Prince. Yeah. Other than that, that was basically it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, now we get into the Kennedys. Mm. So this was one of JFK's favorite things to listen to. He particularly loved the final number of the show, the particular stanza of Don't Let It Be Forgot, that once there was a spot for one brief shining moment that was known as Camelot. And so after he died, his wife, Jackie Kennedy, when she was interviewed by Life magazine, told them this, and thus that cemented Camelot being associated with the Kennedy administration. And also it should be noted that the Kennedy administration does have weird ties to Camelot, where both JFK and Camelot have infidelity, as part of their history. You also have the whole concept of it being cut short, unfortunately, mm-hmm. and, to, and, and the whole loss of idealism. Uh, so there's a, lot, there's a lot of weird, funny parallels that you can pick Absolutely. through, pick through uh, in, 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 in the Kennedy administration in Camelot. There's a great reason why it is associated. And, even, and, and when Ted Kennedy ran for president, they actually used the song Camelot, the instrumental, as his campaign song to help try and bolster his approval rating among people. Because once again, it was that whole thing of bring back Camelot, get back to that glory day. But unfortunately, it didn't go well for Ted Kennedy. So no. he, 
no, he remained a line of the Senate instead. But that's kind of a brief version of Kennedy association with Camelot. There, you, I mean, you, we could do a whole side Patreon conversation about the relationship between Camelot and Kennedy. The musical was oh. briefly revived in 1980 with Richard Burton. It was then revived in 1982 with Richard Harris. And this, and this revival was recorded and released on HBO. That's right. In 1993, the revival was done with Robert Goulet, now being Arthur. Interesting. Yep. And then in 2008, the, the New York Philharmonic presented semi-stage concert version of Camelot, directed by Lonnie Price. Starred uh, Gabriel Bryan as King Arthur, Marin Maisie as Guinevere, and Nathan Gunn as Lancelot, and Christopher Lloyd, that's right, Doc Brown himself as Pelinor. And then they made the film version with Vanessa Redgrave. They did. They did, which was released in 1967, starring the original Dumbledore, Richard Harris, as Arthur. You have Vanessa Redgrave and uh, Italian actor Franco Nero as Lancelot, who couldn't speak English. So all his lines are dubbed in the movie. So there's a fun fact for you. The film itself, though, was like marred with production problems from bad weather to not being able to film in the castle like a whole bunch of stuff. It was nominated though for five Oscar nominations and it won three at the Academy Awards. However, it received not great reviews from critics, citing many problems with the very drawn out runtime, the slow static pace, the lack of style, the pinched and artificial quality of the proceedings, the jumpy inconsistent cuts, the the incessant overuse of close-ups, the failure to sustain any emotional momentum, the fatal wavering between reality and fantasy and the inability to exploit the resources of the film medium. Yeah, unfortunately, Camelot is not one of my top 10 movie musicals. It would not make that list at all. Autumn, why don't we get into now, what was your first experience with this show? How did you come to it? What was my first experience with this show? I don't know. I mean, it's a very sordid history. I don't know the show well. This is not Mm -hmm. on my hit autumn hit list by any means i first heard some of this music when i was about mm-hmm. 10 at the okay. Austin theater they did like a retrospective called music okay 10. and right. it was a celebration of the 10 musicals they had done since their inception so you had right. that you had fair lady you had oliver sound of music you had oliver mame Music Man, I think, might have been in there. Yeah, that, that would make sense. I could, you could definitely do Music Man in that mix. So my whole family was in it, and they did mm-hmm. things from Camelot. So that was my first, like, listening to it, and me going, right, hmm, that's kind of nice. Mm-hmm. And then I haven't listened to it since we started talking about this podcast. <laughs> there you go. This specific episode. I brought it out of retirement for you. You... It, I don't even know if it could be retired because it was never really explored. <laughs> well, now it, well, now it's going to be part of the autumn hit list because how can it not be? Mm, no, pro- still probably not. But I, I think <laughs> I'm finding a new appreciation for it. There we go. There well we go. said. Very well said. Is that it for you? Um, yeah. Okay. So I came to it from an old friend of ours the Colin Wilkinson Stage Heroes. We haven't oh. talked about that in a hot second. God bless you, Colin Wilkinson. Right exactly. There. Right there, man. Exactly. 
point being is I came to this show from him because on his album, Stage Heroes, there are two songs from Camelot. You have How to Handle a Woman. How to handle a woman There's a waste of the wise old man A way known by every woman Since the whole Flatter her, I begged him answer. Do I threaten or cajole or plead? Do I brood or play the gay romance? Said he smiling, no indeed. And if ever I would leave you. Yes. If ever I would leave you It wouldn't be in summer Seeing you in summer I never would go Your hair streaked with sunlight Your lips red as So listen to those growing up, not really knowing the rest of the show, but just knew those songs. Yes. And then when I was at Stratford Shakespeare School in 2011, I went and saw the Camelot production they did, directed by Gary Griffin, after his hit of West Side Story the previous season. Right. He then did Camelot, starring Garant Wing Davies as Arthur, Kaylee Harwood as Guinevere, Jonathan Winsby as Lancelot, Brent Carver as Merlin and Pelinor. You had Mike Nemajewski as Mordred, and Lucy Peacock as Morgan Le Fay, as Gary Griffin brought back the Morgan Le Fay scene into the story. Then, after I was watching that production, I then saw the film with Vanessa Redgrave and Richard Harris and was like, oh. Well, I'm not watching that anytime soon again. That's definitely not going to be on the rewatch list. I'm disappointed. <laughs> I know. But the stage show was actually pretty good. A very good follow-up to West Side Story for Gary Griffin. Well done on that front. A few directorial questions I had for him just about why bring back Morgan Le Fay, but, and, and, move, and he moved songs around in Act 2 as well. So, like, Fire on Goodness came before Mordred's arrival which is like, hmm, Morton needs to be there to kind of get them going. You don't, I, I mean, I, I got what he was trying to do where he was showing that the Knights were already unhappy before Mordred shows up. But yeah, overall, very good production. But yeah, that's it for me, for my experiences. Amazing. Uh, Autumn, what is your first song of your top three songs? If Ever I Could Leave You. If ever I would leave you How could it be in springtime Knowing how it's spring, I'm bewitched by you so. Oh no, not in springtime, summer, winter, or fall. No, never could I leave you at all. Did not make my list. I'm surprised. 
I, it's a beautiful love song. I just have three other songs on my list that I, I def- like that much I, more. It's one of my, the first songs I've I heard from this musical, and I just think it's it's there's a urgency to it. It's gorgeous. It's, it's absolutely beautiful with this whole concept. I mean, it makes you invest in there in this adulterous affair that Guinevere that Guinevere and Lancelot are exploring. It's, it's very it is. complicated. Let me pull up the lyrics to this. And I wanna, like, it I goes know. through the seasons. Like it shows that things can change and there's yes. possibility, right? Like that as the seasons change, maybe their love will change. And, you know, yeah. they kind of, they have like this ideal, idealized notion of what it would be together too, which yes. is also crushed. In yes. the second act. It is. It absolutely yeah. is. And, and I mean, like, just reading some of the lyrics here, I mean, Lerner, once again, hit it out of the park. Like, you have your hair streaked with sunlight, your lips red as flame, your face with a luster that puts gold, gold to shame. Like, talk about words to swoon over. I, I want to share something with you, because I yes. think until I started digging in mm-hmm. this musical further... I thought this was a love song between Arthur and Guinevere, if ever I would leave you. Oh, I can see that. I can totally that's, see. I think in my mind, I still hear Arthur singing it. And yes. that's why I made my list. But it's so interesting. Like, Guinevere, this is what is complicated about Guinevere, which I, mm-hmm. I wish they would work on her more. Mm-hmm. Because she falls in lust with Lancelot. Yes. It's, it's not love. It's not love. She is in love with Arthur. Yes. They have a good relationship. Marriage. Yes. They are good partners. They are. And <sighs> she just gets infatuated with this other guy. Yeah. And I, I just, uh, I don't know. I don't know how you could alter it, but I think I, I, I think what you have to do is just give Guinevere more, like, a, give her a moment to herself. Because all, all her songs are either about Arthur or are, are about Lancelot. Like, she doesn't have a song of her own that gives her a moment in Act Two to sit and think and just go, what do I want with my life? Do I want, do, do, do I want to be with the man who I've been with now for how many years? Mm-hmm. Like she's almost getting, she's, she's almost getting the seven-year itch, as people say in marriage, where, where things start to kind of feel a little dull, feel a little boring for her. And Guinevere is someone who likes adventure. But back to If Ever I Would Leave You. you yes. You've gone on a tangent of Guinevere and not talked about Lancelot. And this is his song. Like, it this is his song. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's beautiful and it's adoring and mm-hmm. it. You know, he talks about the changing of the seasons and how his love will survive all of that. Yes. And, and it's funny. It, yeah. It, 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 it is. It's, 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 it's interesting because we meet him in uh, C'est Moi, which is another great comedic <sighs> song that's just funny, right? oh, where, he, where he's a pompous prick. Yeah. But then this is almost in the same way where he's just being a playboy. Like, but yet we accept him in this moment. Is he being a playboy or is he, does he actually have feelings for her? I think he has lust for her because she's a very attractive woman. 
Well, she's also a prize. She is the queen. Well, that's exactly it. Oh, like, yeah. I, I, it's, it's almost like Gaston having this, and Beauty and the Beast having, yeah, like, Gaston so. would sing this song. Yes, I, yes, you're right. It is, it is kind of like Belle running off with Gaston. Correct. After she marries the Beast. Correct. And Gaston would totally sing this song, because he is yeah. totally... It is kind of cheesy. You know what? I'm not a big fan of Lancelot. I think he's. Is anybody ever a fan of Lancelot? He's an asshole. He's a blowhard. He is. He is a Gaston. And he is a total Gaston. People should play him more that way. Yes. Well, I mean, Lancelot is great for comedic things in the story. And he is a blowhard. He's a total blowhard. But yet at the end. You should feel something for, for him about that loss of friendship. You still should feel the friendship between Lancelot and Arthur. Yeah, I mean, obviously, still- Lancelot is terribly insecure. Yes. Oh, he's absolutely. Not, he's not secure in himself. Mm-hmm. It, the pretense is that he's secure, mm-hmm. but he's not. Yes. yes. Maybe I don't want this. I'm scrapping. I- it is not my first no! choice. Okay, what's your first choice? It's beautifully melodic, but I'm changing it. Because there's a more complicated song that I did not put on my list, and I'm dreading it. I'm, I, I'm, I'm kicking myself in the butt for not doing it. Okay. How to handle a woman. How to handle a woman. Mark me well, I will tell you, sir. The way to handle a woman is to love her. Simply love her. But this song, it's, it, it paints Arthur in a really interesting light because he starts off the song really mad. And it's the one moment where we see him really frustrated with the world. Where he's like, Merlin, you promised you would teach me things. And then, Frigg, you left this major thing out about women. You swore that you had taught me everything from A to Z, with nary an omission in between. But I will tell you what, you obviously forgot that our ruler rules a queen. teaching me by turning me to animal and bird, from beaver to the smallest bobolink. I should have had a whirl at changing to a girl to learn the way the creatures think. First you think, oh, this is sexist because they talk about a woman thinking and how it's bad. But then when you actually listen to what Arthur says at the end, which is you don't try and manage her or do anything. You just love her you let her be her as a male i can say all men struggle to figure out i'm they- sorry as a lesbian i have the same issues and there you I go them, i am a woman mm-hmm. but I, I it's humanity yeah a lot of men do not understand women no no we don't i mean we are we're complicated in you know Yes. If we're going to go with a stereotype, we're, we're complicated. Which is not a bad thing. 
No. Not a bad thing. It's a at sign all. of intelligence. Mm -hmm. And I will say, I think people need to reevaluate this song because some people just write it off as sexist because of the title, How to Handle a Woman. When I first started listening to it, I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> I can't. Yeah. And I was like, no, this is a man who is very confused and he's trying. He is mm -hmm. trying to understand. And that makes it a great song. Yes. It's not just like I don't get women and I don't mm -hmm. care. Yeah. He cares. I don't he, I don't get women and I care and maybe all I can do is love her. Yes. And that's his concluding point, not I have to change her. Oh, yeah. I wish she were more beautiful. Mm -hmm. Oh in 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 many ways the very um dare I say a feminist perspective. It's what every relationship wants yes and every person in a relationship just wants to be loved and the allowance of him to just recognize that he's getting in the way correct is yes. of, of like it's very progressive very feminist perspective even though mm -hmm. he goes through and says oh they they shouldn't think they only have three a year or whatever yeah exactly <laughs> I'm going to go with that. That is, I, it usurps everything. How okay. to handle a woman. Thank yeah. You. Okay. My number one song, though, yes. is Camelot. I'm shocking. Camelot. Camelot. I know it sounds a bit bizarre. But in Camelot. Camelot. That's how conditions are The rain may never fall till after sundown By eight the morning fog must disappear In short, there's simply not a more congenial spot For happily ever aftering Than here in Camelot Including both the first version and the finale version, because they're a pair. Yeah. You can't talk about one without the other. They are. And off the top, I just want to say, I was listening to this song yesterday, and I was like, it sounds like Arthur's trying to sell a timeshare in Florida to Guinevere. Totally. A lot. It's like... It's a sales it, stop. It, it's a total sales stop moment. And I had to laugh, because I was like, this beautiful song is it, it's, just a, it's just a selling song for, mm -hmm. for Guinevere. But it's great. I mean, the lyrics are so beautifully descriptive. Like it paints this wonderful picture of idealistic place. It is. It totally is. Where where the snow goes away and the leaves and it rains only at night. It's like, how could you not want to be there? And at the Especially same time, in England, it rains only at night. Ha ha ha. Oh, see, there's another joke. I didn't even think about that joke, but you're absolutely right. That's a great joke. Yeah. Um, and then Lowe's music is great too because the melody is something that is continually driving and reaching. Mm -hmm. Camelot. It's this reach. Oh. It's, 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 I know it gives a person pause, but in Camelot, reach. Camelot, mm -hmm. reach. Reach for that Camelot. You're never going to get it, but you're going to reach. And in the music, it does the same yeah. thing. Which is that nice little note. Also note. A, a regalness to it. Yes. Ta -da. It's, it, 
Like you can hear it on horns, you know? Well, it is on horns. That, yeah. that, that melody is played repeatedly on the horns. It captures that medieval kind of courtly sound that we, uh, we know. Completely. And yes. it's like, it's like, and now here is like, it's the, it's the introduction of people coming in. Da da da. You've got Correct. come Guinevere and Arthur, king and queen Camelot. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Exactly. And uh, it's inter. Yeah, it's so good. You're right. It totally is that. And then what's neat is when we get to the second version of this song in Act Two. The sad version. Where now it's 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 the sad version, and it's flipped from a major to a minor. Each evening, from December to December, before you drift to sleep upon your cot, think back on all the tales that you remember of Camelot. Ask every person if he's heard the story and tell it strong and clear if he has not that once there was a fleeting wisp of glory called Camelot. Love that. I love a major to a minor. And then at the same time though, as Arthur is recapturing his his dream and idealism, the music builds from a minor to a major as that growing, striving, drive for him at the end to get back to Camelot. Camelot. Now say it out with love and joy. Camelot! Camelot! Yes, Camelot, my boy. Where once it never rained till after sundown By 8 a.m. the morning fog had flown Don't let it be forgot That once there was a spot For one brief shining moment That was known as Camelot and it's in that final stanza that stood at JFK is so perfect. It fits. It fits. It fits our time today, where 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 it, where it ties directly with JFK's line of "Ask not what your country can do for you; ask what you can do for your country." Is that? And it's the same concept with Camelot. Well, Camelot only works when the people of Camelot make it so. Camelot won't be Camelot until the people make it. That's the that's the thing that gets missed with Camelot. Like people think, oh, Camelot just appears and it's here. Mm-hmm. You need to have a collective support, right? Exactly. A collective good. Yes. But we're we're now in a time where we are not idealists. We no. are we're pessimists. I don't know what we are. I don't. I don't think. I. I. It's beyond category. Mm. We are. I'm gonna say we're boxist. Like we're boxed in, even even the liberal mindset Mm -hmm. are boxed in to their own ideals. 
Correct. We're we're, we're we're all in our own camps now. We're not. Yeah. No one is seeing the big picture. We're nope. too busy fighting each other in different boxes. And that goes from left to right wing. This is yes. not just a, a nope. bash Republican thing or bash nope. conservatism. We nope. are all doing it. But it even goes beyond it. Uh, uh, like, to be a true idealist, you have to put yourself aside and do it for the betterment of everyone else. And that's right? what JFK did. That, that's what JFK was about. I think a true idealist is an empath who sees the world with empathy mm-hmm. and uh, you know wants, wants that goodness and wants to see good in all the people, like Arthur did with Mordred. And yes, damn, eh? Damn that that does not work. It's so sad. It's so defeatist. We we need we need Arthur to come back from the mist. And, to, but Arthur to, to did not back. succeed. He did not succeed. And JFK. But he does though. Succeed. Arthur does succeed at the end. Does he? Yes, because just like so, my final note on this on Camelot is that just like with JFK, where JFK as Arthur in America as Tom of Warwick. Arthur leaves behind the idealism and the hope for the future. And that's something we all have, whether it's right or left, they all have an idealistic hope for the future, their own, obviously not a collective idealistic hope, but there's still that idealistic hope of the future. I was just watching Joe Biden speak yesterday. He speaks that he really wants to unite both sides. He, like, he talks about unity. He talks about working together not apart. I have hope and ideal that we all have that little shred of Camelot that Tom of War brought back from the battlefield that has lived <laughs> on in us. Here. There we go. And that's Camelot. <laughs> and, that's, that's the, and that's Camelot. Uh, what's your number two? I have a weird number two. And you're going to be like, what? What is it? Follow me. I love that song. That almost I, made my list. I just, I think it is so incredibly stunning. Yes. And it's just, it's a siren song. I mean, she's a water nymph or water. Yes. Person, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Nimue is a water nymph. Yes. Correct. Yeah. It's very short. It's not a long song. It's It is. And it magical. Is. It's, it's almost plucked right out of the book. Where yeah. we have lines like, out of time, out of sight, in between earth and sea, we shall fly, follow me. Dry the rain, warm the snow, where the winds never go. Follow me, follow me, follow me. It's so haunting. It is. And Monique Lund, who played it in Stratford, came out in this beautiful blue kind of sparkled gown and just stood at, uh, uh, up in the vom and just Brett, Brett Carver just walked 
toward her. And if you watch the stage one with Richard Harris, it's a great That's moment too. Gorgeous. And the water, like the water. Yeah. And the, and the lights all go. And, it, and it's like, no, it's, it's like, no Merlin, don't go toward the light. But he goes. <laughs> it's Who so, wouldn't? It's, right? Yeah. And, and, and the sad part is Merlin knows it's coming. He, I, I, he tells Arthur in that, in the scene prior that he goes, yeah. Where, where, where he goes, I know I can feel her presence. She's coming for me. I know my time is getting short with you. So you got to know these things. Yeah. And then the next scene, he is taken away. He's by, by Ninue. And it's so beautiful. Like, I was, actually, I listen to that song a lot. I don't know why they didn't make my list. Actually, it's, I do, because there's two other ones that are. It's stunning. There. It's really stunning. It is. I, and I thank you for bringing that one up because it's often forgotten in the score. Well, it's, I had never heard it until I watched oh. it. And I'm like, oh my God, this is. Mm-hmm. And it's, all, it's, it's operatic. Like, yes, absolutely. It, it is a resurrection song. Mm-hmm. It's stunning. Yeah. It's absolutely, it's up there yeah. with You'll Never Walk Alone for me. Speaking of You'll Never Walk Alone, like Lerner and Lowe took a lot of inspiration from Rogers and Hammerstein because they were writing at the same time. And my second song will, will get more into how they tie into Rogers and Hammerstein. But this song, you're right. It totally is almost drawing a line to you'll never walk alone or like climb every mountain that the usual big ballad song, but yet this isn't a long ballad. This is a short I know. little concise blip of a song that people often overlook because yes. before this you have Camelot and then right after this you have Samois which is this great bombastic entrance of Lancelot yes. and you totally forget the oh song. yeah the guest song <laughs> and you totally forget that this little ditty is in is, is, is part of this show and it's great yeah no great choice on it keep this one make it longer <laughs> no actually i i don't th- i don't want this song to be longer i think it's just the right length it's just it's- that enough time for merlin to walk off stage my number two is the lusty month of may Wicked little thoughts merrily appear. It's May, it's May, that gorgeous holiday when every maiden prays that her lad will be a cat. This is a classic Golden Age Broadway song. Like, this ties right back to June is busting out all over in from Carousel and, and the Farmer and the Cowman from Oklahoma. Oh, Lord. I knew you were going to bring that song up again. That and then and then he also can tie you back to there. There is nothing like a dame in South Pacific. It's that body kind of Roger and Hammerstein company number. Hmm? I, none of those are my favorite. Oh, just wait till we get to South Pacific. We're definitely going to talk about it. <laughs> there ain't nothing like a dame. Nothing okay. in the world. No, we're not singing that right now. No, no, no. We're singing the last month in May. But I love how body this song is because you're because you're right it's that whole idea of we have this society has this facade of being this pure idealistic wholesome kingdom of camelot but then on the first day of may every year 
Guinevere holds this festival where basically it's a giant orgy on stage. I know. And, and, and they're all like rabbits. And the beat of the song is, 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 a, is flirtatious with that call, call and response between the eighth notes. That bum bum, dun dun, dun dun, dun 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 dun. You almost can feel like a rabbit hopping along and breeding, just hopping from one to the other and then into another. Like they're like they're they're all just breeding like rabbits in this scene, and that's and and that staccato rhythm just captures that feeling everybody gets when they do that first walk in the spring when it's nice weather. It's not too hot, not too cold. The the flowers are blooming. You got that bit of a oh. Especially in Canada, where we go go through a freaking winter of hell every year, and it's like, you oh find, yeah, you certainly find a spring in your staff. Yes, for sure, you do. My, I have problems. This is on my other list. No, yeah. and I'll tell Why? you, it's problematic because it oversexualizes her. It makes her this like. It's like she has simple joys of maidenhood. She has mm-hmm. this where it's all she's thinking about is men and sex. And I don't find that interesting. I, it's not interesting. Mm-hmm. It's not interesting. I, I, think that, I, I, think, I think that helps paint Guinevere in such a way that it makes her not a wholesome character, which allows her then to be drawn to this uh, lustful, adulterous affair that she has. Because if you make her too virginal like, Ju- like julie andrews then you don't believe her going into this other thing but if you make her this person who is singing this lustful hot and heavy song it's I like it's okay obvious that's my problem with it like i'm like mm. you can have you can have complicated feelings for lancelot and it just shows me too much and i just wish it mm. were gone i don't need it i don't need to know about her lust lusty thoughts I, I don't need it. I don't need that. I don't need it. I don't, it's like a slap in the face to me. I know, but it, it, but it totally fits with this golden age Broadway show. And the lyrics are very Sondheim-y as well. Like you have, it's May, the month of yes, you may, the time for every frivolous whim, proper or im, it's mad, it's gay, a libelous display. Like Lerner was, going full song time with this like it is totally this rhymey song that is oh it's just so good like like there's a reason why i made my lawn mowing list because when you're pushing a lawnmower and the song comes on you just get a bit of a hoof in your step to oh my lanta hustle your way through it's lanta and on top of that you have this fresh smell of grass and it's green and it's like oh it just totally works and it even fits where if you're cr- tracking the show, Carousel and Camelot are actually very similar in their plot structures, particularly the first bit of the show. Yeah, sure. And then they t- t- do a complete switch. Like, they do. Yeah. They do. They do. And that's exactly the same way with <laughs> this, where like June is busting out all over is that big kind of company hoof number that gets you out of the duet kind of slower pace scene. Cause before this, we've had the opening at, at the camp with the sad Guinevere theme. Then you have, I wonder what the people are thinking tonight with Arthur. Then it's simple joys. Then it's Camelot. Then it's round table discussion. And it's like, okay, now we need to give ourselves a bit of a hoof to the audience. And out comes June is busting out all over and the lusty month of May. And the fact that both songs have a month name in them too. That's such a clear little 
Well, maybe. From one remote to Roger Hammerstein, where it's like, they took June, so we got to find another month that has some good alliteration in it. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. That rhymes well with things. I think it's a directorial thing. Mm. Maybe it's her looking at everything and going, oh, maybe there's something missing in my relationship. Is there something? Mm. Like, maybe make her more questioning as she's singing it. Yes, very true interesting than her yeah. just like, I want sex. Okay. So lyrically though, there is a verse in here that actually doesn't rhyme very well, but it's sung by Guinevere, which is whence this fragrance wafting through the air, what right. sweet feelings does the scent transmute? Whence this perfume floating everywhere, don't you know it's that dear forbidden fruit? So she's questioning. Like those are all que- the, the songs. Those lyrics end in a question. So you definitely can have her wandering through, watching all this rabbit orgy going on, and her kind of being on the outside, going, "Yeah, what's going on with my life? Like I can't do any of this." I, I very much like Jackie Kennedy. Jackie Kennedy before she met Jack, she was a journalist photographer. She traveled the world, and then she marries Jack Kennedy who cheats on her repeatedly, and she's stuck at home. But yes, lusty month of May. If you make it a questioning song for Guinevere where she is stuck okay. in a world where she has to be this queenly presiding figure of, of this festival, but can't actually participate, mm-hmm. then that song works on a new level. Fine. And I think that's what you have to do. Yeah. Okay, so your number one was How to Handle a Woman slash If Ever I Would Leave You. Then you have Follow Me. Mm-hmm. And then what is your third choice? What do simple folk do? What else do the simple folk do to help them escape when they're blue? They sit around and wonder what royal folk would do. And that's what simple folk do. No, really? I have it on the best authority. Yes, that's what simple You didn't make my list, but I do like that song. I think it's great that people... It is. That there are people who are popular and they're considering if life would be easier yes absolutely well think about it if if arthur wasn't king and could just be a simple man he wouldn't have to worry about the kingdom he wouldn't have knights of the realm to command lancelot wouldn't be in the picture and him and guinevere could simply live in a little cottage happy life like you almost like it's, it's almost like you picture anybody like any person of some type of celebrity or stature sitting in their room at night going googling themselves thinking like i wonder what people think of me it's like when you watch those youtube videos where it's like the most commonly asked questions on google of autumn smith what is autumn smith's favorite color what is her favorite food it's like why do people care about this none of your business what exactly why do we have like like, that whole concept of celebrity culture yeah it's true and and then you have the celebrities doing the exact (laughs) opposite and going well like what is normal life like what would it be like to go to a restaurant and just have- and not have, yeah, like, and not have a camera shoved in my face or have paparazzi chase after me? What would it be just to be 
normal. Yeah. Any, any person that I have met that has been famous, mm-hmm. I, I have just tried to treat as a normal person. There's such a burden to being a celebrity. Yeah. And, you know, it's nice that people just treat you normally. Who has a, a, just a human. Like, you are not just a 2D version that I've mm. seen in this and that, right? Yes, exactly. You know, and there is a full appreciation for that. Yes. You know, privacy and it's huge. And they're just people. They're just, they're just people. And I think there's exactly they put their pants on just like us. They have the the same worries and fears about money and stability, just like us. Yeah. And relevance and legacy. Mm -hmm. We all have these. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I I think it's, it's interesting to put that into song format. The idea that, you know, it's just, it's also kind of neat to think about it as um, this, that this is, the last, this is the last moment between Guinevere and Arthur before the finale. This is their last song mm-hmm. together. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they spend it thinking about what would life be like? Like, what do the commoners do? And it bookmarks, uh, or sorry, bookends with what Arthur was talking about in Act One, where, he's thinking, where he has the song, I wonder what the king is doing tonight where once again he's thinking like a commoner where he's doing that thing of what else are the people doing in the world like there's that wonder about him that's but there's wonderful. also there's also something great about it in the fact that when they first meet she thinks he's, he's a commoner and she is not a queen yeah they're, he's wart <laughs> they're they're commoners right they're yes and the ideal comes from that commoner perspective, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, it's interesting. It's, it's, it's interesting a, it's how that ideal shifts mm-hmm. yes. for them. But they, they, it's, it's them really talking to each other. And I like mm-hmm. that. It's a beautiful shared moment of them trying to see each other mm-hmm. in... It's true. It's, it's, it, it is. It, it, it's a harken back to that roundtable conversation they have in Act One. It's, it's once again, it's another bookmark moment yeah. where it's this last moment where it reminds the audience why Arthur and Guinevere are good together mm-hmm. and why it's going to be tragic when they fall apart from each other. Because you're right, they do make a really good pairing where, where where they bounce off each other really nicely they are they are soulmates they are they are and unfortunately soulmates they they just couldn't stay connected well it's their their friends like mm-hmm. they are to be good partners you have to be good friends yes and i think you know she's still you know she's aging mm-hmm. so i think she you know as we age we lose sight of what is important sometimes and go, how do I, how do I regain my youth? I do that through sex, through, you know, buying a fancy car, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, it's too bad. The yeah. Lancelot thing is, is too bad. Gosh, darn Lancelot coming in and messing it all up. 
Well, he's also, it is, it is kind of like Belle in the seven year itch after mm-hmm. being married yes. to, to the beast. And then Gaston comes in and is charming and she's like, Oh, would it be again an ideal mm-hmm. to go to the other side? Exactly. Grass is always greener. Exactly. Oh, so Nobody good. Great that. choice. Great choice. Thank you. My third song though is one that got cut by Lunar and Lowe in from the original Broadway production, which is Fie on Goodness. Fie on Goodness, Fie. Fie on Goodness, Fie. Lechery and vice have been arrested. Arrest? Not a maiden is ever more in threat. Virgins may wander unmolested. Unmolested? Lolly no let. Get it to swift. Oh, Fie on Goodness, Fie. Fie, Fie, Fie. I give it up to you for these ones. Why don't you like Fire on Goodness? I don't know. I mean, I guess it's... It's a great conflict song. Yes. Like, like, it's a conflict song where it shows how Mordred can slowly pick apart Arthur's world of Camelot. And he does it by simply exposing human nature. Yeah. That's what's scary about that moment. It's, It's almost like Hamble Lecter giving you a therapy lesson where he picks you apart. Like all Mordred has to do is come down to the to the den with the knights and go, "Hey, remember those good days when like you could go out and do things?" And then they start reminiscing, where it's like, "Oh, it's too bad we like can't go out and burn a village or slay a dozen men, or and feel alive again." And then that just breaks them into fie on goodness, fie, and it yeah. just kicks yeah. them in okay. the moment. Yeah, and it, and it, it, and it rips list. off. It, yeah, and it just rips off that honorable fake facade that you were wearing. We're, we're, we're going to get into this when we talk about a, our Sondheim musical in a few episodes, where as a society, the, Arthur has repressed this primal animal urge that all these men have. And when there's no outlet, the minute somebody gives them this outlet, the knights obviously are going to go for it because I think they say it's eight years it's been. Like, it's been like eight years of them living as like monks, basically. And they're getting bored because as humans we can't accept the ideal world we can't accept utopia because we find it boring there's no conflict we need conflict to survive like we feed off that and so when arthur takes that away the knights get bored because they go well there's no more women to save and if we can't save them we can't have sex with them like it's it's a boring life for them and mordred goes hey like screw goodness you should the guys go back to what you you were doing before listen and it's, if the world was just good i don't think there would be art my no boom it's there true would, there would be no art there you art need conflict to create art yes exactly it's the other That's reason it. why ideals we we tread as human beings between good and evil mm-hmm. very very it is a it is a tightrope it is. We are on a tightrope, and we we are a collection of the choices we make, good and bad. Yes. But no one is inherently bad, and no one is inherently good. No. Well, there. that's the thing with these knights. These knights, before they became knights of the round table, they were slaying and murdering and sleeping with women. Like the one guy talks about how he comes across a man abusing his wife, and he kills the husband. 
and uh, and basically he then sleeps with the abused wife because she's lying there naked and says, "What sir can can can, can I do to kindly repay you for your service?" And he sleeps with her, and it's awful. <laughs> but at the same time, he then goes and joins the the round table and becomes this virtuous guy. And then and then right after that, Mordor comes back and shakes things up again. But it's that walk of human nature, kind of like conversion therapy. Hmm. How so? Well, it's like Arthur was like, oh, I see the goodness in these men. I will convert them into virtuous beings. Mm -hmm. And yet it was a cool idea, but I don't think anyone thought it through. Well, Arthur couldn't foresee the ramifications of executing the plan. Like the concept of might for right is a great concept, but then he didn't think of, well, what happens after a number of years and people start getting bored because everybody's being a goody two-shoes all the time? He forgot about human nature, and that's where Arthur has his downfall. He forgets about human nature. Um, and I also will say it's a nice song because in the medieval ages, knights, I hate to say it, but they were glorified bullies. They would ride around and do awful things. And we've, and, and we've put knights and horseback up on pedestals in our history books, and it's like they, these guys were brutal and dirty and not nice. Listen, you make your living off of this. So. Hey, I do. I, 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 you know what? We talk about it. And that's why our education program is called Chivalry in Action, which explores how the Knights Code of Chivalry can be applied to modern day because the Knights Code of Chivalry was created to help curb the Knights' bad behavior. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's the same thing with Camelot trying to curb those Knights' behavior. And I love how this song reflects that, yeah, Knights weren't always good guys. They could be bullies and murderers and rapists they were soldiers yes yeah they were warriors they they were coming to a town and plunder and do what they pleased and that's what Um, they did that's that's what they did always do they fight each other they Mm -hmm. kill each other on horseback yeah they they go to war that's what they do exactly that is and mordred exploits that perfectly to them final goodness that's my third choice i like it i I like it dangerous Not, not on my list, but it's I a good one. Okay, it's, it's a good one. Okay, now we're to the top list. Uh, yeah, so I'll start because I can I can summarize mine really easily okay. because I don't really have any songs that I would either cut or skip. But that being said, when I was younger, I wasn't a huge fan of the Guinevere and Lancelot songs. So like, before I gaze at you again, or I loved you once in silence. in silence and misery was all I knew trying so to keep my love from showing all the while not knowing you loved me too I find those songs boring and slow and kind of just meh but then, but then after, actually it was funny, rewatching the Richard Harris ver, HBO version recently, I kind of went, oh, these songs actually aren't so bad. I actually kind of have a little bit of a liking to them. I mean, they're not the, my favorite songs, but they're not songs I'm like, God, no, let's just move on. So for me, I go like, there's no real songs that I want to cut or skip. Like I more just kind of have 
my favorite songs that I'll kind of play on their own and kind of pluck out of the score. But then like, if I, but oftentimes if I'm going to put the score on, I'm going to play it from beginning to end. Yeah. And now I know Autumn, you got three. You're totally different. I know you said you had Simple Joys of Maidenhood. Like the song is kind of a woman singing about what society deems acceptable. Yeah. Rather than finding her heart in a different way. Mm-hmm. And the way she yeah. finds Arthur is great and their connection yes. and it's mysterious and then mm-hmm. it's revealed. And then mm-hmm. the fact that she subscribes to this prescribed normalcy of mm-hmm. what society wants her to do. It's really boring. Like, but we, I, have, we, have, we forget that Guinevere was a teenager when this song, in this song. I know. She's a youthful teenager who's being let out of the house for the first time. I, same reason why I don't like Romeo and Juliet. I'm not interested in watching teenage angst. Same moi is my next one. Same moi, moi, I'm forced to admit, tis I, I humbly reply. That mortal who these marbles can do, say moi, say moi, is I. I've never lost in battle or game, I'm simply the best by far. When swords are crossed, tis always the same, one blow and all the Say moi, say moi, so admirably fit, a French Prometheus unbound. And here I stand with Alan untold, exceptionally brave, amazingly bold, to serve at the table round. Cut it. Gaston. Hit it. Gaston. I don't know. No, hold on. Let me pull out those lyrics here. Hold on. No, it's all about him. It's boring. Yeah, but it's a comedy number. It comes in. I don't need a comedy number in this. I need him to be more complicated than that. I find him boring because he just fits a type. He fits into the box. There's no going outside that box. And Guinevere, when she's with Lancelot, is in a box. Like, I find it boring. I find them boring. Yeah. Okay, so what's your third choice of songs? I don't have one. Okay. I'm going to leave it at that. Those are the two that really kind of bug me. Yeah. Are we on to the final question? Yes. Of does this musical deserve to be revived? Does it have a place today? And what are your what are your words, Autumn? What do you think? I think it needs some edits, Mm -hmm. and it needs uh, it needs some dramaturgy. It needs some serious. Like, if we're going to do it, because I do think there's something there's great discussion points in it. Yes, and there is a lot of relevance to our loss of. idealism Mm -hmm. and hope Mm -hmm. the same thing 
um, and a vision for a better future. And, and I, I think there's a lot to gain through this musical in terms of mm -hmm. that conversation. Yeah. I just think it needs some adapting. Yes, I agree. But even, even uh, you know, some of the misogyny is interesting mm -hmm. in it, is indicative of the time and place. And I, I mm -hmm. like, for God's sake, we cannot liberalize things to the fact where we're rewriting history. History is there to teach us a lesson. Mm -hmm. There are ways that we could do this musical where it would become relevant. I don't mm -hmm. know if it should be done in its original fashion anymore? No. No, I think it needs to be adapted. You're right. I do think, I think it, it makes us re-examine how we approach things. And I will say that I also agree that this musical needs to be brought back to the stage. Adapted, obviously. I do hmm. think there are elements you can cut and fix in here that, that we have to do. But I think it's important that we need to do this because our society is lacking idealism. We need some idealism back in our bloodstream to make us want to strive and do better in the world. Because right now, as you said, we're all in our boxes of being pessimist and realist and the world's looking gray and bad. All we can think about is how governments and systems aren't working for us. And, and that's all we're doing. We're just being negative. And what this musical does and, and, what, and, what, it, and what it means to do is give hope and drive you to strive for the better. And that's what we need back in the bloodstream. And that's what this musical does. It leaves you with that run, boy, run. It makes you want to run and do better. And, it, and yeah, that's why I think this musical is an absolute necessity. It's one of those ones that is needed now and should, and should be performed somewhere where politicians can see it to remind them of JFK and go, you need to get back to that. Get rid of all those horrible, awful lackeys of the government that are just sucking the life out of it and ruining government for all and get back to JFK, get back to that time of hope and driving people and giving and making government work for the people, not the other way around. And on that note, Bye -bye. it's, I think it is time we close this chapter, this yeah. book of Camelot. Thank you everybody for listening to this epic episode. We want to thank Mr. Brody Well, once again, our fantastic theme music creator, composer, extraordinaire for for doing his work uh be sure to check out his music uh under father flozis as well as his latest single home decor which which is a rap all about household furniture and the other uh things about fatherhood and yeah just follow him on apple music spotify all that good stuff all the things and yeah and then follow us at before the downbeat on instagram twitter facebook yeah. where we're posting uh, almost every day of the week with either a fun fact, a clue, some we're doing playbill music challenges. But yes, check out those platforms. Also check out our Patreon page where you can donate a small fee once a month to help us keep the lights on. And in return, we'll give you all types of goodies, including a top 10 list, theater news reviews, movie musical commentaries. And we will be releasing deleted scenes from... From our episodes, because not everything will be made into uh, the episode. Like this episode was four hours. <laughs> I guarantee you, there will be some cut tangents in there. Autumn, where do people find you? Autumn DM Smith at Instagram and the Facebook. 
Mm-hmm. And the, the old company name, Littlewood Smith at Facebook and Instagram. Plus, I have a website. Check it out. Littlewoodsmith.com. All one word, Littlewood Beautiful. And you can find me at all, on all social media platforms at Mackenzie Horner. Just look for the guy with the ginger hair. You also can, I would say, go to YouTube now because Cup of Hemlock's theater site you can now watch my theater panel, which I'm hosting, called The Cup, which has theater reviews where we have been breaking down on a, on a weekly basis the Stratford Festival uh, Shakespeare plays that they are releasing. So we do a weekly discussion of those. So be sure to check those out. Those are some great panels that we've been doing. When this episode comes out, we'll probably will have just finished our last episode of that and we'll probably be finding something new to talk about but be sure to go to their cup of hemlock theater on youtube to find all that good stuff and many more and until next time when we're going to reveal our next episode do not let it be forgot that once there was a spot one brief shining moment that was known as before the downbeating musical podcast <laughs> thank you everybody yeah and camelot too And Camelot too. Thanks, everybody. Talk to you later. Bye.